Hello, my name is Andrew Laposha, and welcome to the Twilight Years. On today's episode, we will be looking at the death and final years of movie star Humphrey Bogart. Humphrey Bogart, often nicknamed Bogey, is one of the greatest movie stars of all time. One of the leading stars of Hollywood's golden age, he was a popular actor who was a major box office draw and starred in some of the most beloved classics of the silver screen. It is hard to find a filmography so distinctive than Humphrey Bogart's. Before his film career, he was a Broadway actor. When he moved to Hollywood in the early 1930s, he often played supporting roles, usually as a gangster or a villain. In 1941, he became a bona fide superstar when he starred in the film noir classic The Maltese Falcon. The following year, he starred in Casablanca, which was his most well-known role and frequently ranks high on lists of the greatest movies of all time. Bogey was nominated for three Academy Awards during his career, winning one in 1951 for his performance in The African Queen. In 1944, he starred in the film To Have or Have Not with a 19-year-old actress named Lauren Bacall. They had impeccable chemistry both on and off screen. They were married the next year and had two children together. Bogey seemed to have it all. However, Bogey was a heavy smoker and drinker, which is what did him in. His decline only lasted a couple years, but it was certainly long and painful. In 1954, Humphrey Bogart was worried his career was on the decline. He would sometimes get drunk at restaurants and complain that nobody sent him good scripts anymore. His personal life seemed to be going fine, though. His son Stephen was five and his daughter Leslie was two. They sometimes cheered him up. Bogey felt he had kids way too late in life and didn't know what to do about them, but he loved them unconditionally. Bogey sunk into a deep depression. Everything seemed to be making him angry. On one occasion, a friend asked him if he picked a good prep school for his son. Bogey angrily replied, Hell no, I'll be dead by then. All he hoped for was one more great movie. Just one. That would be enough for him. To help aid his depression, he frequently partied with his Hollywood friends, most notably Frank Sinatra. One weekend in the spring of 1955, Bogey, Lauren, Frank, Judy Garland, David Niven, and a host of others had a crazy weekend full of drinking in Las Vegas. Lauren Bacall surveyed the damage afterwards and said everyone looked like a goddamn rat pack. The name stuck and was made official at the Romanoff's restaurant in Beverly Hills. When columnist Earl Wilson asked Bacall what the purpose of the pack was, she replied to drink a lot of bourbon and stay up late. Before long, everyone knew about the Rat Pack. Many celebrities wanted in, but they were turned away. It was a very exclusive club. In September 1954, the Bogart family was the subject of Edward R. Murrow's weekly interview series, Person to Person. The interview was conducted at their home. Bogie and Bacall were asked about their careers and gave a tour of their home, which included a room full of paintings they received from Paris. They also showed off their two children. The interview was very well received. Late in 1954, Bogie sold his production company, Santana Productions, to Columbia Pictures for $1 million. Bogie really had no plans to use the money for lavish spending. He intended to use it as a legacy for his wife and kids. When his father died, he left Humphrey with massive amounts of debt. Bogey completely paid them off. He never wanted that for his kids. Bogey made a copy of the million-dollar check and hung it on the wall of his den. In 1955, one of the most successful shows on Broadway was The Desperate Hours. 
The drama starred Carl Malden as Dan Hilliard, who is the head of the family that is being held captive by a gunman played by a young Paul Newman. When a film version was announced, Newman declined the role. Bogie lobbied hard for the role, despite being 25 years older than Newman. Bogie had the idea of casting his good friend Spencer Tracy as Dan Hilliard. At first, Spence was interested, but declined because neither star wanted to give top billing to the other. Frederick March was cast in the part instead. When the movie premiered, the acting and direction were praised, but the plot was criticized. The film did not do well at the box office, which disappointed Bogie greatly. He said to director William Wyler, I think I'm too old to play gangsters. Almost immediately after filming The Desperate Hours, Bogie was cast in The Left Hand of God. The movie reunited Humphrey with Edward Dimitrik, who had directed him in The Cane Mutiny. In the movie, Bogie played a Catholic priest who'd befriend some missionaries and their nurse in wartime China. Eventually, the priest and the nurse fall for each other. Actress Jean Tierney played the nurse. She had a history of severe depression and anxiety. In 1943, she was doing a benefit at the Hollywood Canteen when she contracted German measles. She was pregnant at the time, and her daughter was born prematurely with various defects. Years later, a fan confessed to Tierney that she had the German measles and broke quarantine to go see her idol, hugged her, and immediately disappeared. During Left Hand of God's production, Tierney struggled, constantly flubbing lines. Bogie sympathized with her, as he was close to a sister with mental illness. He helped her with her lines and encouraged her to seek help. After production wrapped, she checked into Harkness Pavilion in New York and began a long therapy process. That same year, he starred in the Christmas comedy We're No Angels. Shortly after that, he did something different, appearing in a television drama. In the drama, Humphrey would be reprising his role of Duke Manti in The Petrified Forest as part of the live anthology series Producers Showcase. Bogie hated television. He felt he did not look good on it, but he was lured in when the offer was made that Bacall would play the female lead. The show was taped on Memorial Day 1955, and Henry Fonda co-starred with them. Bogie's performance was praised, but viewers and critics noticed how gaunt he looked. After his television debut, Bogie received many offers, either to do another TV play or a weekly series. He turned them both down cold. In response to a weekly series, he said, I'd sooner dig ditches. Stage actress Helen Hayes suggested doing a live play. That didn't appeal to him either. He wanted to do feature films and nothing else. In December 1955, Humphrey Bogart was guest of honor at a New York Friars Club roast. Comedian Red Button served as roast master, and Bogie was lauded by the likes of Phil Silvers, Alan King, and Jan Murray. Most New York Friars Club roasts are very profane, and this one was no exception. Women were not allowed at them until the 1990s. However, his wife made a recorded appearance and brought down the house that day. Bogie had a great time at this event, and at the end of the roast, he turned red buttons and said, Redzy, I think this is the beginning of a beautiful friendship. The roast is on YouTube and is definitely worth watching. Check it out. In 1956, Bogie announced the formation of Mapleton Pictures, whose movies would be distributed by Allied Artists. With this company, Bogie planned to buy scripts so that he could take roles that would go to younger stars. The first project for Mapleton would be based on the crime series Underworld USA, as well as an adaptation of the novel Melvin Goodwin USA. However, before production on those could begin, he was contract-bound to appear in the movie Harder They Fall. During the previews for that movie, Bogie noticed how watery his eyes were and thought that his toupee looked very obvious. 
He thought his appearance would hurt the movie, but it didn't. Reviews were good, but before long, Humphrey would receive some bad news. If you're like me and you wanted to start a podcast, but were not very tech-savvy, you wouldn't have known what to do. Then I heard about Anchor. If you haven't heard about Anchor, it's the easiest way to make a podcast. Let me explain. It's free. There's creation tools that allow you to record and edit your podcast right from your phone or computer. Anchor will distribute your podcast for you so it can be heard on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and many more. You can make money from your podcast with no minimum listenership. It's everything you need to make a podcast in one place. Download the free Anchor app or go to anchor.fm to get started. One afternoon in early 1956, Bogey was having lunch at Romanoff's when he ran into actress Greer Garson. While they were chatting, Humphrey had a terrible coughing fit. Garson told him to go speak to her doctor, Dr. Maynard Bransma. After much convincing, Humphrey gave in. Lauren Bacall later said, I should have realized at once that the mere fact that he'd consented to go was an indication of something serious. At the time, Bogey had been having trouble swallowing and his weight had dropped. They assumed it was a throat infection of some kind. Frank Sinatra let them use his Palm Springs house and they went on a brief vacation, hoping that the so-called infection would heal under the sun. Sadly, it did not. Dr. Bransma did some tests and found malignant cells in his throat. The doctor said that an operation needed to be done right away. Bogey asked the doctor if they could wait until after the completion of Underworld USA. The doctor replied, not unless you want a ton of flowers at Forest Lawn. He added, we were lucky to catch it so early. It's not often that we can in that area. Bogey knew that his acting career was over. He and Lauren took their two kids aside and told them that he had to have something removed from his throat and would be gone for a couple weeks. The kids were young and didn't understand. Neither did their parents. On March 1st, 1956, Bogey underwent a nine-hour surgery at the Good Samaritan Hospital. When he awoke from the surgery, recovery was long and painful. At one point, he coughed so much that his stitches came loose and had to be re-sewed. Luckily, he had telegrams and visits from friends that could help him. His good friend John Houston visited and optimistically predicted that Bogey would be fine. Fred Astaire and John Wayne, both stars he barely knew, called him. Agent Swifty Lazar, who was scared of illnesses, came to visit. Jack Warner, who was head of Warner Brothers Studios, Columbia's rival studio, sent a telegram. Despite his well wishes, he snatched the script for Melville Goodwin, retitled it Top Secret Affair, and cast Kirk Douglas and Susan Hayward as the two leads. Surgery was only the beginning of the struggle. Humphrey had to have x-ray treatments and chemotherapy. Eventually, Bogey convinced himself the treatments were working and he started to smoke again, though he switched to filtered cigarettes. He never stopped drinking, though, unless he was in the hospital. Because Bogey was at home all the time, the newspapers started reporting that the end was near. New York Journal American columnist Dorothy Kilgallen wrote an article saying that Bogey had been moved to the 8th floor of Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles and was fighting for his life. This was strange because there was no Memorial Hospital in Los Angeles. Humphrey got a hold of the journal's editor and angrily screamed into the phone, Do I sound as if I'm fighting for my life? God damn it, don't you check your sources. You just allow that bitch to print anything. The journal retracted their statement. Bogey himself released a statement saying that he was doing fine. However, Humphrey was not doing fine. In November 1956, he felt severe pain in his left shoulder. 
He and Lauren assumed that it was a pinched nerve, which often happened after major surgery. They went back to the hospital to learn that the malignancy had spread. Bogey went home. He moved slowly and had no desire to eat. He also lost a lot of weight. He asked Lauren not to have their kids in the bedroom too often. They wanted them to remember him when he was well, not as a shell of his former self. Bogey was not completely aware that he was dying. At one point when John Houston and Morgan Marie, Humphrey's old financial manager, came to visit, Bogey asked them to come clean. He asked them if he was going to make it. Marie assured he would. Both men knew that was a lie. The call did not want Humphrey to read in the newspaper that he was near death, so everyone who came to visit had to put on a happy face for him. By December, Bogey was wheelchair-bound and weighed about 80 pounds. The dumbwaiter in their home was turned into a makeshift elevator. He was constantly fighting for breath and had to take hits from oxygen tanks, as well as injections of nitrogen mustard to slow down the malignant cancer cells. He also vomited blood often. At one point, Dr. Bransma and two other doctors came to their home to speak with Lauren. They told her he could not last much longer. It would be weeks, maybe even days. She limited visitors to only a select few and started to make funeral arrangements. On January 12, 1957, Catherine Hepburn and Spencer Tracy came to visit. As they left, Spence said, Good night, Bogey. Humphrey replied, Goodbye, Spence. When they left the house, Spence looked at Kate and said, Bogey's going to die. Lauren asked Spence if he would do the eulogy at Bogey's funeral, but he declined, knowing it would be way too emotional for him. John Houston grimly agreed to do it. Dr. Bransman knew they had to prepare the children for the inevitable. He told Stephen that his father was going to sleep soon, a sleep so deep that he wouldn't wake up. The next morning, Lauren left to pick up their kids from Sunday school, and Humphrey called out, Goodbye, kid. Hurry back. When they returned, Bogey was comatose in his wheelchair. Stephen kissed his father on the cheek. Early the next morning, on January 14, 1957, Bogey died. He was 57 years old. His funeral was held on January 17th at All Saints Episcopal Church. Bogey was cremated and his casket was not at the surface. In his will, he asked that his ashes be scattered in the Pacific Ocean. However, that practice was illegal at the time, so they brought a niche at Forest Lawn Glendale, a place Bogey often referred to as Disneyland for stiffs. A whistle was placed in his urn in honor of the line from To Have or Have Not, You know how to whistle, don't you? Just put your lips together and blow. As the kids in Bacall rode in the limo to the funeral, they noticed hundreds of onlookers assembled to observe. Stephen said, I hate them. Lauren replied, No, you don't, Stephen. You don't hate them. Stephen said back, He's my father, not theirs. They don't even know him. In lieu of a casket, a model of Bogey's yacht, Santana, was placed at the front of the church. The funeral was attended by a cavalcade of stars, including Spencer Tracy, Catherine Hepburn, Judy Garland, David Niven, Ronald Reagan, James Mason, and many more. After Bogey's death, Lauren Bacall had a relationship with his good friend Frank Sinatra for a little bit. She married actor Jason Robards in 1961, but they divorced in 1969. She always considered Bogey to be the love of her life. She would say for many years that sometimes it felt like he had been gone for only five minutes. She died on August 12, 2014, at the age of 89, though a future episode about her is very possible. Many years after Bogey's death, he was still receiving accolades. In 1997, Entertainment Weekly named him the number one movie legend of all time. 
That same year, the United States Postal Service issued a stamp with his likeness on it. Bacall and their children were in attendance at the ceremony. Two years later, the American Film Institute named him the greatest male star in cinema history. His movies still get bought and rented and shown on Turner Classic Movies. It is safe to say that Humphrey Bogart will never be forgotten. Thank you all for listening to The Twilight Years. Please don't forget to subscribe. Follow me on Facebook and Twitter. The links are included in the description of this episode. If possible, leave me a review. If you have any requests for somebody you would like to see talked about on this podcast, let me know and I will do my best to get to them. Thanks again for listening. My name is Andrew Laposha, and I will see you next time.